Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. Today, uh, we are in Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. If you need a Bible, please put up a hand. We've got a couple of young strapping lads who are passing out volunteer, uh, passing out uh, Bibles. Page 908 in that hardback. The rest of you, Acts chapter 4 in your Bible, if you know how to get there or type it into your digital Bible. Our reader today is Sister Marla Hillier. Would you please give her a foundation welcome? Anybody here want to pray? And then God gives you exactly what you asked for? Apparently we just need to ask God for boldness in executing his agenda. And then he says yes. Funny how that works. If I ask my son to clean up something, there is a result to that request. And when I ask him to eat his favorite muffin, there's a very different result. It's funny how quick he moves for that muffin. We are preaching our way through the book of Acts. This series is called Acts of the Holy Spirit. What the third person of the Trinity is doing in and through this new thing called the church. First Jews and then Gentiles who embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and they trust only in his cross to wash away their sins. God gives them his Holy Spirit in Acts 2, just like he said back in Ezekiel. In in case you ever think that this sounds blasphemous, God himself said it. Hey, the law isn't working to make them holy. All it's doing is showing them that they're guilty. So he says in Ezekiel, I'll write my law on their hearts. I will give them 
hearts of flesh in exchange for their current hearts of stone. And we see that historically it happened and recorded in Acts chapter 2. And stuff starts to flow out of this. The continuing ministry of Jesus bothers the religious elite because they thought they had solved the problem by crucifying Jesus. Can you imagine how frustrating? If you're a part of, if you're a part of a religious group and a big part of what you do is to maintain power, every once in a while somebody claims, up to, claims to be a false messiah, a false hero, and maybe even raises an army, and you've seen over and over again, let alone reading a history book, that as soon as the leader dies, you know, everybody runs for their own life. They save their own skin, and it's probably fine. These guys are thoroughly confounded because five or six weeks ago, it's like, well, we crucified Jesus. Everything should be fine now. The problem is that half the city is swearing up and down that they saw him after the crucifixion. Problem much? Hmm? Has, it, has this ever happened in history? I'm, I'm preaching to the skeptic right now. It doesn't actually matter for the purposes of the Sanhedrin, the religious group. It doesn't matter whether resurrection is true or not. If a whole huge group of your capital city believes he is alive, you have a problem. Because they're crazy. Imagine it. Their crazy assumption is that if he is alive... He is, in fact, Messiah, and we need to obey everything he said. Now, the real question, the test, and what we see happening in the book of Acts, is, is the commitment of a bunch of religious zealots enough? Is their commitment enough to, to this brand new religion? Because you see, if you stop and ask yourself theoretically, is commitment enough alone is that going to be sufficient? Or is something miraculous going to happen, to have to happen for this faith group to last longer than five minutes? You see, the book of Acts says, oh, guys, no, <laughs> my Holy Spirit was doing it in and through broken people the entire time. You can't reprimand the Holy Spirit. You can't take the Holy Spirit or his gospel and put them behind bars. There is nothing you can do for a sovereign God who wants to communicate his love and his salvation to the nations. You can't stop him. You're going to try. It was said in Psalm 2, and they just quoted it here. You can try. You can rage against the Lord and his Messiah, but it's going to be hard. So that's what takes us to today. We are going to see how this early church responds. When what? Two guys who love Jesus, and they love God, and so they're proclaiming God's goodness and healing a guy who's been lame for more than 40 years, and they get arrested for doing something kind. Could you imagine, any of you, could you imagine going to jail here in the U.S. without a, without a specific accusation of what you did wrong? They just locked you up, and, and what they're mad about is that you went to the hospital to pray for a total stranger who was on their deathbed, and God miraculously heals that person, and they're jumping and laughing and praising God, and, and the police go, that's not allowed, and they throw you into jail for it? We couldn't even imagine that. In our culture, if somebody gets healed, they just come up with a scientific explanation to explain it away. 
That's how we roll. But these folks, they believed in the miraculous. They just didn't have the answer that they wanted to be true. Good thing humanity has changed over 2,000 years. We don't do that anymore. Only one chuckle. We're the same, right? And so what do we do? We create problems for these two apostles. We throw them in jail. And when they get released, they seem to be just fine and praise God for his sovereignty over the tough situation. Anybody here, would you love it if your heart was pre-programmed for tough times that you'd pray prayers full of faith? All right. I'm having problems today. Sorry about that. I know I would. I want to be ready for tough times. I'm on the green one. It's too green. There's some kind of fuzziness with this. So, God of difficult things. First thing we're going to do is going to turn to the people next to you, meet a couple of folks, tell them your name, even if you think they know your name already. Go ahead and say hi. I'll give you 10 seconds, and then we're going to do a discussion question. Here's what I want you guys to chat about with your new group. What were some possible thoughts and feelings, I said that on purpose, which you might think and you might feel, that Peter and John might have because of being accused of evil while doing good? It's like, God, we're doing your work, and they are accused of evil. Brainstorm together. I'm going to give you 90 seconds. What are all the possible thoughts and emotions when you're accused of evil for doing good? Go ahead and chat with your new group.
Who would like to share with the room an answer that your group discussed? Who wants to share with the room? Yeah. Okay, everybody, hold for a second. Louder a second time, please. Yeah, being upset, absolutely. Huh? Frustration, okay. Being astonished, didn't see that coming, wow. What else? Yeah, mad. Uh huh? Faith. Oh, so just not freaking out at all. Yeah, that is a possible. What, Mike? That's right. Are you saying you're allowed to do that before Paul even wrote Philippians? Uh, <laughs> is Abraham allowed to have faith before the book of Hebrews is written? Uh, come on. Isn't that cheating or something? What other thoughts and emotions? Well, again, we're asking possible. Every, the possible has to have an asterisk next to it. Why? Because the book keeps telling us over and over again, these guys are filled with the Holy Spirit. It makes me think, huh, I wonder if my responses are full of faith if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's like the text is preaching to us. Harvey's. I saw a hand up. No, that was you guys. Sorry. Anybody here ever frustrated that you believe something is so obviously true and it's a blessing and you want somebody else to believe it too and they just don't see it the same way as you? That's like a brokenhearted sadness, frustration. God, what are you doing? Yeah. What else? Any other possible thoughts and emotions? All right. Well, note takers, get your pens ready. We're going to talk about who God is to us and his sovereignty over difficult things. Here's your first blank. No difficult thing happens that God didn't see coming. Some of y'all need to hear this. You could walk with Jesus for 60 years and you still need to be reminded of this one, right? Or you're brand new, you're investigating church. And this is hugely problematic. Our brother C.S. Lewis called it the problem of evil. How can so much bad stuff happen in the world if God can see it all and if he's over it all? How does he allow this stuff to happen? I've addressed that question at length before from this pulpit, but let me give you the Cliff's Notes version. Love between a creator and creation cannot exist without free will. AKA, if God created us like robots who naturally loved him and had no free choice, it wouldn't be real love. So since God is love, his creation that's made in his image has free will and tragically, we decided to listen to a snake. We, we have decided we want to be like God, the same temptation that Satan himself fell to. So 
this could be problematic if we don't know that. You're telling me that when I lost my mom, God knew that was going to happen? Well, let's go to, the, go to the text first to make sure Greg's not making things up. Why am I in 1 Samuel? Hold on. Look at verse 24. Oops. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in God, and then they, what did they do? You said this long ago through the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2. There's a whole other sermon there about making sure to know your Bible so that when God does stuff, you know it's him. <laughs> right? Good things or bad things. You know the heart of your creator when it happens. You go, yeah, that looks like God to me. And this family knows. Nothing difficult happens that God didn't see coming. He told the family of faith about it a thousand years before Messiah showed up. He said, Messiah is going to be a target of war. The nations will rage against him. Huh. Our family, a few years ago, experienced something tough. Anybody remember these days? Every family unit is supposed to be at least six feet from each other. The mask people and the non-mask people getting all upset at each other. The elders having to repeat over and over again, we are Christians, we are not going to fight each other like the world does. Nobody really knowing what was going on. Our average Sunday attendance before COVID was 190 people in the room, the two services, separate from kids, separate from our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters, 190. And for about six weeks, it was zero while we're online. And then a little bit after that, elders doing what every pastor really in the whole world was doing, listening, what is the governor saying, what are the feds saying, you know, what is allowed, what is not allowed, what is safe, what is not safe. And we start gathering, and like 40 people in the room. <laughs> For a little while, I preached to the band. Some of you band members remember, there were, Renault was doing me a solid because there'd be like five of you in the room, and it's like, I need y'all to, to help me preach because it was so weird having a big, empty room. It was really easy to ask, and I know this, it wasn't just me because data has been gathered, pastors all over the world asking, are we even going to have a church at the end of this? Less than three months in, it was so clear all the big churches had pivoted really well because they had tech people. And so all your people are listening to some of the best preachers in the world every week. And you're sitting there going, is our fellowship going to be strong enough? Are we brothers and sisters? Because if, if this is just a sermon, we can all just go after the best sermon. Does that make sense? Can we call that consumerism? Doesn't mean it wasn't a great sermon, it was.
but like when this d passes, will the relationship between brothers and sisters be strong enough that we still have a fellowship? Pastors and elders, deacons all over the world didn't really know. And let me ask you an important question. When did God get the text message letting him know that there was going to be a disease all over the world? When, when was God notified? He created time, and he knows everything. So no one notifies him of anything, and there is not a place in time for him to be notified. Before he created the foundations of the world, he could see the end from the beginning. And he said, even in a world of pain and suffering that they're going to create through their rebellion, I will make my name famous by dying on a cross for rebels and calling them to myself. He saw it coming. Here's what I want to encourage you to. This isn't in your notes, but you can jot it down if it's helpful. When difficult things happen, read scripture about God's knowledge. He knew about it. His wisdom. He has better decision-making skills than you or I, and his power. He is strong enough to do what he needs to do. This is, of course, terrifying. If you're a young Christian, you might not know the scriptures that tell you about God's knowledge and God's wisdom and God's power. And this is why I really want to encourage you. Um, <clears throat> we've got like seven, if you count every little group, we've got folks gathering in seven or eight different manifestations throughout the week. And we get together to open the scriptures and to pray for one another. And if you're not in one of those groups, there's not a safe, easy, good relational context in which you can ask your questions. To those of you that are, have been walking with Jesus for a while, let me just put forward to you, if you've got somebody in your group who's known Jesus three years or less, th these might be your top agenda in helping your friend. Show them the places in Scripture that God knows what's up, he is wiser than we are, and he is strong enough to act out of his love. Give young Christians this. They need to know what Scriptures to go to. Maybe even work on memorizing one or two of them. Romans 8, right? We know that God takes everything, even the bad circumstances, and works them for good in the lives of those who love him and are called according to his purpose for them. That's an incredible verse to teach somebody who's new in the faith. This is where we need to go. Here's your next step. Here's your call to action. Here's how you prepare for crisis. Here's how you build your faith. Second, for you note takers, no difficult thing happens that God didn't allow. Is that harder than the last one? Look at verse 28. But everything they did, speaking of those who are raging, was determined beforehand according to your will. That one will make us uncomfortable. Let's talk about it first in its immediate context before we talk about its implications for us. God determined to send the Son 
to live a morally perfect life. He determined to allow him to be betrayed by a friend. He determined to allow him to be falsely accused by the people who religiously were supposed to be protecting the people of God. They are instead killing Messiah. By the way, baby's fine. Baby's totally fine. I love having a baby. All right. They are saying right here to God, you determined all of this. And that sounds nice if you and I are looking at it as consumers of salvation. When we think, hey, God determined in advance to save me from my sins, we all smile and go, yay, that's wonderful. But then we got to stop and slow it down and watch the passion of the Christ one more time. God determined that. This goes back to the last slide of texts that remind us of God's wisdom. Tim Keller was fond of saying, if you were morally perfect and you knew all that God knows, you'd make the same decision as him. That's where we have to go when we're constantly playing armchair quarterback to the king of the universe. If you were morally perfect, if you were perfect in your love, perfect in your wisdom, and you knew all that God knows, you would make the exact same decision. But you don't know all that he knows, and you're a sinner. And so you're sitting here second-guessing the Savior. He wanted to die for us. He could have created a robot world where he didn't have to suffer. He didn't. Why would he want to die for rebels? According to scripture, to show off his glorious grace in the heavenly places. Everything in the cosmos is watching Yahweh. The New Testament also says, I'm forgetting right now which passage, that the gospel is so beautiful, so manifestly wise, that angels are like leaning in going, what is he going to do next as he saves people? This means that at the cross, angels stood with their jaws on the ground. That he was washing away our sin. This means that angels were shocked on Easter morning. Wow! They could feel something shake. Just because an angelic being that is still on the side of Yahweh, he, just because that being is sinless doesn't mean they know everything. Easter morning happens and what is created inside the heavenly places? Worship. What about the heavenly places that have rebelled against him? Terror at his sovereignty. He just broke sin's power over them. Now what are we going to do? We were going to try to get them all into hell, and now he's saving them. God sending Jesus was always the plan. I don't know who I'm criticizing, but I'm going to criticize them. My uh, best friend, Ken, did his bachelor's work here at William Jessup. He was there uh, 10, 12 years ago. And a chapel speaker came and started off his sermon with the sentence, the cross was God's plan B. And there was 
audible gasps in the room and preached this whole sermon, I guess, about how your God is so small and so weak that he's, what, surprised when humans sin? Seriously? What part of Ephesians 1 before the foundations of the world did you miss? You, you, you skipped a part. What does the word sovereign even mean if God can be surprised and things can happen outside of what he permits? I know this is hard. I know we don't like it. I know that the modern ethos hates the first two chapters of Job where Satan asks for permission to do horrible things to Job in order to test his faith, and God allows it. He said, yeah, do it. You and I don't like that. We think only an evil God could allow me to suffer, and God seems to have a very different opinion. The discussion between God and Satan isn't about Job's suffering. It is about Job's character and his faith. And God, showing off his own glory for what he has done in Job's life, I'm going to show you how strong Job is. That's the opening to the book. And that's a tough pill to swallow if you just think God exists to make you happy. There's nothing about the book of Job that would allow you to believe God is in the cosmos to make you happy. That's his, the whole point. Or, I, I think is far more honest of that book, to say... God has the right in the heavenly places to show off the beautiful things he has made in your life. He didn't do it for kicks and giggles. He's showing off his power. He's showing off his beauty. Look, I made Job patient. Look, I made Job love me. Look, I made Job full of faith. Look. Look at what I did in him. He loses his health. He loses his wealth, and he will not curse me. Look what I did. Brothers and sisters, are you guys okay if you suffer and it shows off God's work in your heart to people around you that need to see that work? Are you okay with that? Because God's agenda is to seek and save the lost around you. And the way that you suffer is going to make a very loud statement louder than anything you say while times are good. These are empty chairs. You're welcome. This is what it looked like in 2017 when Greg Kaiser got a great idea to start a brand new church. It was me and seven friends. And after a year of hard work, and preaching, and strategy, and prayer, we gained one person who already knew Jesus, no less. Do you think that's why I got into church planting? To see nobody come to Christ? Yeah, yeah, you don't know anything about church planting unless you know the heart of the planter. See, the planter finds out from raw data that in the Western world, the churches that do 80% of the baptizing are five years old or younger. You hear that one and it bothers you. And you go, 
oh, wait a minute, our old structures are not always serving us. It seems to be really, really hard for the established church to be open-minded enough to try bold new ministry ideas and getting the gospel out. New churches, they share the gospel or they don't get to exist tomorrow, right? We, it, it's, it's do or die. We landed in Mexico and, and Cortez burned the boats. So forward is the only way, right? I'm gonna tell you, I'd spent from age 19 to, how was it, old was it? I was dumb enough to try that. I was 32, I think. I spent 13 years feeling very strongly called to plant a church from scratch, and I assumed, God never told me, I assumed that that meant that it was going to go well. Anybody here ever added to what God said? He said this much, but then you add on stuff in your imagination, and then it doesn't go that way, and you're like, God! (laughs) You told me to marry him, and he was always going to be nice. And here we are. (laughs) Did God allow me to plant a church that went absolutely nowhere? Hmm? Did he allow that? He allowed me to feel that shame of being lousy at my job. He allowed me in my my pride to get knocked down a few pegs, hopefully. He allowed me to embarrass myself in front of all my church planting friends when I have to tell them 13 months in, we're closing the doors. God has the right to tell me to go do something, even if he knows it's going to be an epic failure because his agenda was to do something inside me. He has the right. He has every right. Here's the action step. I want you to remember, commit to placing your pain at the foot of the cross. Again, I keep telling you, the reason I think that people make it through boot camp at all is because they're expecting it to be tough. Does that make sense? It would be horrible if we told them everything's going to be easy and fine. Now off to boot camp you go. What if we told ourselves, told those around us who are following Jesus and helping us follow Jesus, what if we said, I am going to take my pain and put it at the feet of the crucified Savior, and I'm taking my hands off of it, and that will be my plan with pain for the rest of my life. That's what I'm going to do with it. Because that there was two actions, and we only focus on one. Everybody likes to say, oh, no, bad stuff happened. We should pray. Every, it, you don't have to be a Christian to know that. You can be outside of the faith. Like, well, what are Christians going to do when something bad happens? They're going to pray. Cool. But what, what about that part where I take my hands off of it? I want to encourage you, like a lot of human behavior, it's a lot more likely to happen if we decide in advance. God, when bad stuff happens, I am going to talk to you. I'm going to tell you stuff you already know about how much this hurts because you love to hear from your children. And then I am not going to try to control this situation. I will do what is normal, rational response 
for what you've handed me to do in the situation, but all the God-sized stuff, I am not going to try to control it. See, Peter saw soldiers getting ready to arrest his Savior, and he took things into his own hands, didn't he? Chopped off a guy's ear. Peter's, like, pretty lucky he didn't get himself crucified the next day as well. We take our pain because God knows all, and he is wiser than us, and he's more loving than us. He allows these two men to be pulled before the Sanhedrin and accused of evil when they've done good. He's got a plan. I don't have to always know what that plan is. Jesus did this too. Jesus can't submit to himself. He has to have a higher authority, so he submitted to the Father. As he's in the garden, in emotional agony and spiritual agony, he says, I would love it if we could do this another way. There, I told the Father what I need. And then he took his hands off of it. Not my will be done, your will be done. Brothers and sisters, take your hands off of it. I know it's hard, way easier to say it than to do it. But if we determine before the bad time comes, it's going to be easier. If you're in a good season right now, praise the Lord. Determine to put those needs at Jesus' feet and take your hands off of it. If you're in the middle of the thick of it right now, I know it's hard. Try to take your hands off of it. Third, no difficult thing in your life contradicts God's love. Did you guys know that? Feels like it. If you are fed a cotton candy Jesus who's always just there to make you happy, something bad happens. God doesn't love me. Oh, okay. Well, your fake little plastic Jesus who never really existed just melted under the heat of trouble, didn't he? Here's what, oh, I forgot to put the verse in there. Um, let's just go real quick. John 15. This is in the context of Jesus saying, um, a new commandment I have for you, love one another. Verse 13 is, where, is the more famous verse. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And he talks about how we're not slave and master any longer. I call you friends. He says before the cross that I am about to communicate my love through the cross. Why is that mission critical? Because later when bad stuff happens, does the cross become untrue? That's important, guys. Did Jesus all of a sudden not love you to the point of death because you got fired from your job? The marriage falls apart. Did the cross not happen? Your kid won't talk to you. Did the cross not happen? Right? Here's why I've got a coin on the screen. Here's the thing about a coin. A coin, your entire life, whether you realize it or not, has always grown faith inside your heart and mind and it has demanded faith your entire life. Allow me to prove it. 
if I asked you without a coin in your hand or multiple coins in particular, if I said, does a coin have two sides? You would say yes. If I put a quarter in your hand and said, is there an eagle and George Washington's face on both sides? You would say yes. And if I asked you, how sure are you? Would you, would you wager a million dollars? You would all not hesitate at all. You'd be a little intimidated that I was willing to lose a million dollars on the bet. But you, the more you thought about it, you'd go, no, no, it, it, yeah, no, I've, I've seen this. Here's the point. Here's what matters. You have never, ever seen George Washington's face and the eagle at the same time because it's not possible. You have never seen both. Your eyes and your brain retain the information from looking at one side and you remember it when you flip the coin over. And it's reinforced that you can keep flipping the coin over, over and over. And every time your entire life that you've interacted with the coin, you've only seen one of those two images until about 20 years ago and they started doing some cool artwork and all that. But the old quarters just had George Washington and the Eagle and that was it. And it was reinforced constantly. Guys, it takes an incredible amount of maturity, maybe it's beyond all of us, to really in the moment of pain and suffering to feel God's love. When you are suffering, your brain knows that God loves you. Your brain knows he died on the cross. Your brain knows he, that he has proven his love over and over and over by delivering his people for thousands of years. But you're not necessarily feeling it. In the moment, it's pain. In the moment, it's loneliness. In the moment, it's rage. In the moment, it's betrayal. And God's love is so theoretical. And in the pain, what if Satan came to you and said, God doesn't love you? You'd have to say, no, no, even if I wagered a million dollars, I know what the other side of the quarter looks like because I've seen it. I have experienced God's love over and over and over and over. It doesn't matter that I'm not feeling it right now. It's a lousy moment. Maybe it's a lousy month. Maybe it's a lousy year. But through his scripture and in my life, I have interacted with the goodness and the mercy and justice of God over and over and over. And it doesn't matter that I can't see George Washington's face. I've seen it before. And I will see it again. I will. So here's your next step. I want to talk to those of you who are exploring faith right now. You need to follow Jesus. This old trope of I'm suffering, therefore God doesn't love me, this has to go. This has got to go. And for some of you, this might be your last big or your, your umbrella term, uh, your, your issue of faith has all been tied to this one thing. It is one of the most popular things in the culture for people to say why they don't want to believe in a benevolent God. I want to encourage you, this, this argument doesn't hold water. And I'm not saying that to like the culture, to like wag a finger at you and try to win an argument. I'm trying to set you free from something I believe Satan told you. The enemy of your soul wants you to never ever trust Jesus. He does not want you to have abundant eternal life now and after your physical life. The enemy of your soul wants you to trust you. 
And I believe Jesus has proven his love for you over and over and over again. And that's what I'm calling you to look at. Look at Jesus. But the Christian next to me is a hypocrite. Yeah, join the club. We're all hypocrites. The gospel's about Jesus. He has never betrayed you. He has never let you down. He has not done things you thought he should do. Call that a Tuesday. So I want to encourage you, follow Jesus, love him, worship him. That's what Christianity is. Jesus owns all of me from here on out. I am all in. And if that is something that you want to do, I want to encourage you to come chat with me after the service. I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we ask your Holy Spirit to teach us from the text today because we know that whether it's Greg's preaching skills or my listening skills or whatever, God, our, our human, uh, our sins, our, our shortcomings, our lack of wisdom, all these things would get in the way, Lord, except that your Holy Spirit teaches us. So we ask you to teach us. God, allow soft hearts to receive what you've said that would be resulting in joy-filled obedience. God, we want to obey you gladly because our hearts have learned to trust you. We want it so bad, God. But faith is so hard, God, because of the old self that just only trusts me. So God, do a miracle in our hearts. Perhaps for the very first time, help us to trust Jesus. We ask for this, God, in your great name. God's people said.